0: No one likes a bragger, Somebody's always talking about how great they are, all the things that they've done, all their accomplishments, how much better they are than everyone else, or someone who boasts, so where we don't use as much, I'm actually going to move this because I can't see the people right here, I can't see you, so I'm just going to move this, there you go Amber, good to see you, yep, I'm going to go back now, alright, that's better, hello. Oh, Joel, now I can't see you with this either. So here we go. There it is. Here it is. All right. Back to the introduction. No one likes a bragger or a music stand in the way. Same same thing. Someone who boasts, someone who focuses on their ability, how great they are, how much better they are than someone else. Boasting, uh, the definition uh, for boasting is to talk with excessive pride and self-satisfaction about one's achievements, possessions, or abilities. We have people in our mind when you hear that definition of boasting. Focusing on ourselves, self-glory, what all we've done, how great we are. Well, in many ways, uh, as Paul writes a letter to the churches of Galatia, he's dealing with a group of people, these false teachers that have come in and started to focus on what they had done starting to boast in things they had done on top of God's grace, things that they added to the gospel. And it led to this boasting, this self kind of satisfaction, this self-righteousness, this ability to be able to attain righteousness on our own. And it led to this kind of smugness uh, there amongst the church. And this was what Paul was writing to correct the churches of uh, in his letter to the churches of Galatia. We begin our study this morning uh, through this book. It'll take us through the rest of the uh, spring into the summer. Uh, so, over the next few months, we'll be walking through the book of Galatians. Uh, and we begin now in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul's going to lay out the, a couple of the main themes he's going to develop and tease out throughout the book. But he is going to, you're going to hear he's going to be addressing this issue of this group of false teachers known as the Judaizers who had come into the churches and begun to say that you had to add things to the gospel. There are other things you had to do. In particular, they were bringing in parts of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, saying no, "You know, before you were Christian, you had to become Jewish. You had to maintain and, and, and hold fast to the dietary food laws, the, the ceremonial uh, days, uh, and then primarily still the uh, circumcision of, uh, of men. And they were holding that up as what was required to become a Christian. And so Paul's writing specifically to undercut that and correct them, you'll hear later on uh, in his tone, but they were also discounting Paul as an apostle, his teachings, kind of pushing it aside. And they began to boast and stand in their own self-righteousness. And this is the context in which Paul writes this letter to. So we'll read here these first five verses, Paul's greeting to these churches of Galatia. And then we'll jump in. Paul writes this, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In this greeting, you may be, if you're reading through the Bible, you may kind of breeze past these verses in these New Testament letters, these epistles. Again, these were letters written from the Apostle Paul to individual churches, or here, this group of churches in southern Galatia, or letters to individual people 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, uh, Titus. And in this letter, you may just kind of breeze past the greeting. Now, this is just kind of normal pleasantries. Paul's just getting to the meat here in verse 6. Uh, but we would make a mistake if we were to do that. Because again, Paul is laying out the main themes of what he's wanting to accomplish and argue in this letter. And so in these five verses, what I want to look at this morning is first we're going to see Paul's authority. He's trying to convince them and write about his authority that he has in verses 1 and 2. Then we'll see Paul's gospel in verses 3 and 4. His gospel in verses 3 and 4. And finally, we'll see Paul's praise in verse 5. Paul's praise. So first, Paul's authority. Paul is beginning different than he does in his other letters. So he'll often reference himself as an apostle, but here he's defending himself more about where his apostleship has come from. And you can hear, again, some of the critics um, saying, Oh, well, we shouldn't listen to Paul What authority does he have? And what right does he have to come and tell us what to do? And so Paul is saying, I'll tell you what right I have. I am an apostle. Now, where does that apostleship come from? He makes it clear. It's not from men or by men. So it's not a group of people that have come and said, Paul's doing some pretty cool stuff. Let's make him an apostle. It wasn't individuals that went, you know what? We need somebody that maybe comes out of a Jewish background that could be a great witness to the Gentiles. Oh, Paul's the guy. He's the one. Let's choose him. Paul's saying, no, that's not where my apostleship came from. Not from men or by man, but my apostleship came by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now that word apostle, it means something. It means one sent by God or a sent one. So it has an actual meaning. And you read the New Testament, there are other people described as apostles. But you have kind of these different categories. You have big A apostle and little A apostle. A big A apostle, or what Paul's talking about here, the ones selected and sent by Jesus, the 12 apostles, the one who had witnessed the resurrection, commissioned by Jesus, and walked in with that authority to then their teaching built, laid the foundation of the church. This is where so much of the New Testament comes from, the apostles' teaching. Like in Acts chapter 2, the early church committed themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, and breaking of bread. Their teaching came from their authority, and that authority came not from men, by men, or by themselves. It came by Jesus, by God. He said, you guys are sent by me, and I'm going to build my church on this foundation. My spirit will inspire you to write these words. It will be my actual words. You'll be men carried along by my spirit, but your teaching will lay the foundation. And that apostleship, that big A apostleship, has ceased You ain't got apostles walking around anymore. There are some traditions that we'll talk about, uh, apostles that continue today. The Catholic Church believes in apostolic succession, that from Peter, the first pope, that that apostolic authority has succeeded from every pope then on out. But friends, whenever that foundation was laid through their teaching, there was no reason to continue laying the foundation. That apostleship has ceased. Now, in a little a apostle, one sent, that's anyone who may be sent, so one of our former elders, Abel Rivera, uh, was sent him and Cynthia were sent to Miami as he's preparing to come back up here and plant a, a Spanish-speaking church in the area. So he is in some ways an apostle, a little A apostle. You can call him. He's right there. There's Abel. Where is Abel? There he is right there. It's, the, it's Apostle Abel. Um, you could, in a sense, say that. It's probably not helpful because it would be confusing. So maybe don't do that. But in that sense, again, little A apostle. It's like the difference between big D disciple, little D disciple, um, those who were 12 disciples of Jesus. Uh, Each of us are disciples of Jesus in that way. So Paul's making the clarity, I am an apostle. I'm sent by Jesus. He's the one that gave me the authority. I didn't choose it. Others didn't choose it. Jesus is the one that showed up on the Damascus Road, and he commissioned me to be sent by him to the Gentiles. That's where my authority comes from. So Paul's laying it out there. He is... Um, uh, authority given by Jesus. And notice on that Damascus Road experience, if you you go back and read it in Acts chapter 9, it's an incredible story as Paul was on his way to persecute the church. He was a Jewish zealot. Um, He was a a Pharisee of Pharisees, a, a Jew of Jew, Israelite of Israelite, on his way to snuff out this new thing called Christianity. Oh, he hated it. He was authorizing and killing Christians. When Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, was killed, Paul was right there watching it. And he was on his way to kill more Christians. And you know what happened? Jesus showed up and changed his life. And this is why I think it's important. Paul was not seeking Jesus. He was not right there on the verge Oh, man, I'm interested in this guy. What's he saying? I'm not really sure. I have some questions. Let me, I'm right there. It's low-hanging fruit. Paul was about as far away from Jesus as you could be, and Jesus showed up and took out his old heart and gave him a new one. Now, here's why that's important. I think sometimes we don't say it. I think sometimes we may believe it, but there's this scale of savability of people who aren't Christians. And we think there are people who may be, like, really far away, and we just go, man, all I can do is pray. I can't really do anything else. It doesn't really seem like there's a lot of hope. But then there's others who are close, and these are, oh, let's, let's get this going to be close. We just maybe do one more invitation, one more uh, conversation. But what we see here is that salvation belongs to the Lord, and if salvation belongs to the Lord, then there is no one that's too far away from Him that can be saved. Oh, friends, it should give us tremendous hope as we walk into this world to be able to share this gospel with people that would make no sense for them to come and follow Jesus, to bend their knee to Him as a a king, as a savior. But yet we know that our job is not then to change their hearts. Our job is to get the message from our lips to their ears. God's job is to get the message from their ears to their hearts. So we can walk out in boldness. This is how. We, We partner with missionaries in northern Africa a primarily Muslim country, and their message, if they had to convince people to leave their families, to be persecuted, to be kicked out of their homes, and possibly even physically harmed or killed, what hope would he have to stay there? But he continues to stay there, him and his family. Why? Because he knows salvation belongs to the Lord, and the Lord can do anything. It fuels our mission when that's the case. That we see God's power here, who showed up and saved Paul and sent him as an apostle. This is where his apostleship comes from. He substantiates his calling um, by the fact that it came from Jesus and not from men. But he also substantiates this authority through his community. So not only his calling, but also his community. Look, he says, he's an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ, God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. Why does Paul include that? Well, Paul's writing to them, letting them know, hey, heads up, I'm not the only one who's standing on this gospel. There are all these brothers and sisters with me. There's a community that Jesus is building here, and I'm a part of that community. I'm not on my own here. And that's an important, I think, message, not only is Paul saying this, but also for us. As we see, we are not the first ones to believe this gospel, we're not the only ones in Florida. We're not the only ones in America. We're not the only ones in the world. We're not the only ones throughout time. Friends, as, as believers in Jesus, what we're doing is we're linking arms with a community of faith that's global and that's throughout time. It transcends cultures. It transcends uh, borders. transcends languages. And one day we'll gather people around the throne of our king from every tribe, tongue, and language. And that is our King, that's the community that he is building. We don't have anything new to offer. We're not standing on our own here going, hey, we got a new message here for the 21st century. They had it wrong for 2,000 years, but now we've got it. No, we're saying the same thing that's been said. That's one of the reasons why we'll do things like creeds or confessions. Not because they have authority. The Bible alone is authoritative. Um, It's God's revealed word. But these creeds and confessions, what they do is they link our arms with Christians around the world and throughout time. And we read the Apostles' Creed sometimes, and we go, hey, those Christians that wrote that in the year 300, yeah, we believe the same thing. Jesus didn't tell us to add to his gospel to make it more attractive or more palatable. His command to us was to guard the gospel. So Paul tells Timothy to guard this good deposit, to be to be passed down. Paul's authority is substantiated by his calling and by this community. He's saying, I am an apostle. There's authority that I have here, but it's not from me. It's not from others, it's from Jesus, and it's in the midst of this community. And this teaching should be listened to, because Jesus is the one who's authorized me. And Friends, there's a, a similar, I think, bent in even culture today, to want to look at the apostles' teaching and disregard it. To try to cut the legs out from underneath it. We don't need to listen to Paul, we don't need to listen to the New Testament. There are issues there, they, they got some things right, some things wrong. And to try to discredit the authority of the apostles' teaching. It's the same knee-jerk that I see um, in our time today. It was the same thing happening in the church in Galatia. They were looking at Paul and trying to cut the legs out from underneath him, trying to remove the authority that he spoke from. My friends, I would just say, there may be no more important question that you answer as a Christian than to answer this question. Why do you choose to believe the Bible? Is it actually God's Word? Is it infallible, inerrant? Is it Him speaking to us through men, inspired by men, but His words written through personalities, through people here on these pages, and we have then His word. Why do you choose to believe the Bible? It's such an important question. It may be the most important question you have to answer as a Christian. And I won't take time to answer it, but I will just point you, there's a great small, there's a small little book that begins to dive into this uh, conversation called Why Trust the Bible? It's short, it's small, look, like it's the size of my hand. I love small books. Uh, this isn't comprehensive, but it's a good introduction. If you have questions or want to dive into that, how can we trust this? Is this, in fact, the apostle's teaching that has this kind of authority commissioned by Jesus? Can we trust this book? Oh, it's an important question. I don't have to stop myself from going on a tangent. And I'm so proud of myself for not doing it. We're moving on to point number two. And that's Paul's authority. Now, what did that authority Bring, that authority brought a message. That authority brought a gospel. And this is verses three and four, Paul's gospel. He's writing, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. Now, here's Paul's gospel. I want to walk through just a few things here. Um, Paul begins with who we are. that We see in this These couple verses, this is just introductory pleasantry. Paul begins with who we are, that we are helpless and we are lost. You may say, well, where is that in here? Well, that's there in verse 4, that Jesus comes to rescue us. That rescue implies that we needed to be rescued. You think of a rescue, who needs to be rescued? Somebody who can't help themselves. Somebody who's trapped, somebody who's stuck, somebody who's lost, someone who's helpless to do anything about their own situation. They need a rescue. And friends, that was our story. Apart from Jesus, in our sin, we had alienated ourselves from God. We were separated from God. Our sin made a separation between us and God. There was no way for us to get back to Him And there was now this distance. There was not peace. We needed to be reconciled. And we couldn't do it on our own. There was no amount of good things we could do to get back to him. Some people think this is what religion is, our way back to God. If we do enough good, we can then earn our way back to him. I was able to spend a summer in Italy one year with uh, Antonio and others who we prayed about earlier, a church that we partnered with over in Salerno. I spent a summer there, and every day would walk on campus uh, at the local university And talk with students and just ask them the question, how will you get into heaven? How will you get in? They believe there's a heaven. On what basis would they be accepted? And by far, the most common answer I heard was, well, if I live most of my life good, 55, maybe 51, 49, most of my life good, I can get my way in. My friends, I think that's not just particular there. I think that begins to get its way into even our own hearts. That it is up to us to earn favor or acceptance before God. Of friends, what the Bible teaches, though, is there's no way for us to get back to Him. Our sin has separated us from Him. And the requirement isn't a majority good life. It is a perfectly good life. Well, that's the problem. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. To do that, it's like missing the first question on a test and trying to make a 100. It's impossible. You aren't doing it. There is now this separation. We are lost, we are helpless, and we are in need of rescue. But guess what Jesus did? He came to rescue us. This is what he did. Look at verse 4. Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. And want to look at those four things here as we look at what Jesus did. First, he gave himself. I want you to see what Jesus did. Jesus was not obligated to save. Jesus was not trapped or overthrown or outsmarted. He gave himself. It was a choice. He was a willing sacrifice. He looked and he laid his life down for his sheep. And so you look at the story of Jesus whenever he was betrayed in John chapter 18, And we may think, oh, Judas outsmarted him. He betrayed him. Jesus was in the garden just picking some olives. And all of a sudden, here come Judas and the Roman soldiers with torches and lanterns straight out of a scene from Beauty and the Beast storming the castle. They're coming to get Jesus. And he didn't see it coming. He didn't have time to escape. Peter tries to get his sword out, kill somebody. He just cuts off an ear because apparently he's a terrible swordsman. And Jesus is trapped. He's imprisoned. And he's crucified. Oh, no. But God redeems it all. Is that the story? Oh, it's not the story. Jesus knew all that would happen to him. He knew that Jesus was on his way to betray him. He said the night before, like, hey, Judas, I know what you're going to do. And Judas leaves. And that scene in John chapter 18, I want you to hear the setting of what is happening. These Pharisees and chief priests came with their lanterns, torches, and weapons. And in verse 4, chapter 18 of John's gospel, then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, he knew it all. He went out and he said to them, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. Jesus told them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing there with them. And when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell on the ground. Isn't that an odd scene? Why would that happen? And here's why I think It happened. John's gospel is filled with I am statements, seven I am statements throughout, describing who Jesus is in his ministry. I think here in verse 6, when he says, I am he, I think Jesus is saying, I am he, that name that God has given and revealed himself to be. If Moses in the burning bush, when Moses says, who am I supposed to say sent me? He tells them, I am sent you. Yahweh, I am that I am. He is self-existent outside of time. This is God's great covenant name, Yahweh. I am the great I am. And Jesus there in the garden, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, says his name, that he is the divine one himself. I am he. And when that name is spoken, the soldiers who have all the power in that moment can do nothing but step back and fall to the ground. And what does Jesus do? He gives himself to them. Why? Because he knew what had to happen. It was his choice to give himself. He was a willing sacrifice. He gave himself for what? We see in there in verse 3, he gave himself for our sins. For our sins. That word for is a huge word in the Bible. It gets this idea of substitution. That Jesus substituted himself for us. He took Our place. He gave himself for our sin. So our sin, all those who've trusted in him, our sin is placed on him. And he's treated as one who had sinned against and rebelled against God. The wrath and the anger of God, the curse of the law was poured out on him instead of us. He gave himself for our sins, substituted himself. And then he gives us his righteousness. There is this exchange that happens. That he gave himself for our sins. And what did that accomplish? Well, we see it accomplished a great rescue. That he gave himself for our sins to rescue us. This word rescue is used, the only time this word is used to describe our salvation. A lot of other ways our salvation is described. But this word rescue is the only time here. It's used in other times. It's used to describe God's rescue of the Israelites out of Egypt. It's used to describe God's rescue of Peter out of prison in the book of Acts. It's used to describe God's rescue of Paul from a shipwreck in the book of Acts. But here, Paul uses the word to describe our salvation. It's his summary word of what Jesus came to do. He came to rescue us. Oh, friends, Christianity is a rescue religion. Your translations may say deliver. That's that same word rescue there, that he came to rescue us. This was his primary purpose in coming. If you were to think, someone were to ask you, how would you sum up what Jesus came to do in a sentence? How would you do that? A lot of things you can say. A lot of ways it is summarized. Here, when Paul's writing this letter to the churches of Galatia, he's writing them saying, here's what Jesus came to do. He came to rescue us. That's really the heart of what he came to do. And that rescue was needed because we were helpless we didn't need to learn things we didn't need to be taught something primarily Jesus did teach he did set an example but that wasn't a main thing that he came to do there are people maybe who aren't even Christians who look at Jesus and go he's a good teacher good morals a good ethicist taught good things maybe even Christians as we believe he came to do but that's not primarily what he came to do primarily he came to rescue us Think about it. If you're out on a boat and you see a woman drowning, you're out of Lake Mineola, you see a woman drowning, and you go, hold on, I've got a book on how to swim. Let me get it. I'll start reading it. You can learn all the basics. You'll be okay. Better yet, let me just throw you the book. You can teach yourself. We're not doing that. What are you doing? You're jumping in to save the person because they need help. They need a rescue. They don't need knowledge. Oh, friends, we needed Rescue. He did not come primarily to teach us, to give an example for us, to guide us. No, he came to rescue us because our sins were the biggest problem. That was the great issue that he came to resolve. If knowledge had been our biggest problem, God would have sent a teacher. If ideas were our biggest problem, God would have sent a philosopher. If behavior was our biggest problem, God would have sent a moralist. If power was our biggest problem, then God would have sent a politician. Thank God he did not. No friends, our biggest problem was sin, and praise God he sent us a savior. And whenever Jesus summarized his ministry, he does the same thing that Paul does in Matthew 20:28, 20, that that savior did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He has come to rescue us. And friends, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. And you maybe haven't heard what the gospel is. You have an idea about what Christianity is. You came on a great Sunday. And you've come in a great book because what Paul's doing in the book of Galatians is he is clarifying what the gospel is. There is no other gospel. There is one gospel on which I stand through all eternity. And he's clarifying that. There's a lot of noise about what Christianity is and is not. But you've come on a great day and you've come in the middle of a great study to be able to hear what Christianity, what this gospel actually is. In some way, summed up, Sally Lloyd-Jones, a a children's author, and it sounds demeaning to say that so much more than um, what she does. She's written a number of good books, the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, and others. Um, She describes God's redemptive story as God's great rescue plan. That's not a childish way. That's a very biblical way to describe what Jesus came to do. He has come to rescue us. If you're not a Christian, I hope you'll begin to hear, what's at the heart of Christianity? It's a person who loves you and has come to rescue you. And it'll be amazing for you to see what he then asks of you or demands of you or what deserves this rescue. We'll get to that later on. He has come to rescue us, but rescue us from what? He tells us here in verse 3, verse 4, he has come to rescue us from this present evil age. From this present evil age. The Bible divides history into two ages, this age and the age to come. There's two different ages there. And the age to come was inaugurated by Jesus. It was brought into place by Jesus. It's often the New Testament also referred to as the last days. That's any time after Jesus. It's not like, oh, we're living in the last days. Well, we are, but we have been since Jesus came. He inaugurated this age to come. And so here's what's interesting is that these two ages now currently exist side by side and parallel to one another. This present age and the age to come. They coexist right now, running parallel until Jesus returns. And what Jesus did is He gave Himself. He gave Himself for our sins. He gave Himself to rescue us. And He also pulled us from this present evil age and has brought us into His age, this age to come. He's brought us then into from darkness to light. He's transferred us. This is other places. Uh, Paul writes this, Colossians 1.13. He says, he has rescued us. There's that again. It's a different Greek word, but the same sense. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. He has transferred us and moved us into this new life, this new kingdom, this kingdom of life and purpose and joy and peace where we find flourishing, where we find the way to live as we have been designed to live, as we follow our creator and our king, as we begin to put to death the things of this present age and follow then the king of this new age, uh, this, his kingdom of the son that he loves. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's that same language. He's rescued us from this present evil age and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, into a new family, into his marvelous light. This is what Jesus did. It's the gospel that we see here. What, though, did the Father do? So this is who needed rescue here, we see in the gospel. What Jesus did, we see there in verse 4. What did the Father do? What did the Father do? We see in, back up in verse 1, actually, that the Father raised him from the dead. Raised him from the dead. That God the Father accepted this payment of the Son. This sin penalty, this payment that Jesus offered, the Father accepted it by showing when He raised Him from the dead. You go and you pay at a store with your credit card, you wait those couple seconds until that little green check mark pops up on the screen, it says approved. Well, friends, what the resurrection is, is the green check mark of the Father, the approval of accepting His payment for our sin, showing that it's done, that Jesus has paid it all. All to Him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. There's nothing else that we have to pay. He paid it all, and we see that in the resurrection. The Father raised Him from the dead and now extends to us grace and peace. Those feel like, again, just churchy words. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, those words are pregnant with theological meaning and implications for our life. There is nothing that we need more than grace and peace. And Paul begins and ends every single, letters, every single one of his letters with that understanding of grace. Grace to you, and may grace be with you. The whole Christian life is sandwiched between grace, I think what Paul is getting at here. And notice who he's writing to. He's writing to who? Verse 2, the churches of Galatia. He's writing to Christians, and he's telling them, you need grace. Grace is not something we need just at the moment of conversion. We decide to follow Jesus and we're saved. We get grace then, and we move on to more uh, complicated things. No, we need grace every single day of our life. We do not grow beyond grace. We grow deeper into our understanding and resting in his grace. We need His grace to us. The Father accepts the payment of the Son and now offers us grace and peace. Peace with God. We were once at enmity with Him. We once had strife. We once had beef with God. But He has now reconciled us to Him. We now have peace with God. We have peace with one another. And we have peace with ourselves. There is hope now for a real peace, a peace that transcends circumstances, a peace that transcends the world, a peace offered to us by Jesus that nothing in this world can alter or remove. It's a song that can always stay on our lips. It is the peace of Jesus that cannot be taken from us. And this peace is given to us and his grace is given to us, unmerited favor. We don't deserve what God has given us and we cannot pay him back. And he's not asking for it. But man, this is hard for us, isn't it? If you want to step outside of the Christian faith, just think about your life. How hard is it to accept gifts people give to you? Think about extravagant gifts. And they say, hey, no strings attached. Don't pay me back. What do we want to do? We want to pay them back. Even if we can't pay them back, we want to somehow like do something for them. Or just to reject the gift entirely. I don't, it makes me, it, 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 that kind of grace, that kind of gift, it makes me feel like I'm needy. Maybe in our pride, it's hard for us to accept grace. Oh, friends, I think this is hardwired in all of us, to, some, to varying degrees. We find messages of self-salvation attractive. Here are things that you can do to save yourself. Here are things that you can do to improve your standing before God. And there's parts of us that are drawn to that. We love to be our own saviors. Our hearts naturally tend towards self-glory. Oh, here are the things that I need to do. Okay, let me, I can do this. Here's a checklist. I can do these things. Let me then, okay, maybe I was saved by grace, but now let me earn my way and increase my standing before God by what it is I'm doing. Maybe we enter by grace, but we've forgotten it there. Oh, friends, what Paul is saying here, this is what he's getting at this church of Galatia. He's saying, no, no, it's not the gospel plus something else. You do not add anything to the gospel. You do not add anything to his grace. It is his grace alone. It is his gospel alone. It is Jesus alone. It's Jesus plus nothing. That's salvation. It's not Jesus plus a little bit of your effort. Jesus plus a little bit of what you're doing. Or, let's get into some other places, Jesus plus baptism. I don't think that's what the Bible is teaching, that we are saved by faith and grace alone, by our grace alone through faith, not by anything that we do. It's only Him. It is His grace given to us, totally unmerited favor. And this grace is not just meant for the moment of when we're saved, but every day in our life. And why in the world would God do this? Well, we see in verse 4 that it was according to the will of our God and Father. And that's why it's important to see. Why did God rescue you? Here's what you're not going to find there He rescued you and transferred you and saved you from this present evil age according to how deeply you loved Him. Was your love for Him strong enough, deep enough? Was there enough affection there? Did you feel enough feels? Did you cry enough tears? Did your skin tingle enough in those moments? Is your faith strong enough, deep enough, and affectionate enough? Uh, You're not going to find that. You're also not going to find that he came and he rescued you according to your effort, your goodness, the things that you've done. God's not up in heaven looking down going, okay, this guy, he's doing a pretty good job. I'm going to go and rescue him. He deserves it. And this woman, she's just been crushing it recently. Look at all those tears she's crying on Sundays. I'm going to go rescue her. She is, man, she is really, really moved by my love for her. I'm going to go rescue her. Oh, no, friends, his rescue was according to the will of our God and Father. He saved us because he planned to. It was his decisive will to save us, it was according to his predestined will. You may say, oh my goodness, I I don't know how I feel about that. Here's what's important to see. I mean, this is all over the place. Ephesians 1 may be the most, uh, the clearest place, as Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. To bless it is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before us before him he predestined us to be adopted as sons through jesus christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will there's that same phrase So before the foundations of the world, God had initiated this rescue plan according to His decisive will and now His covenant promise with His people to love His people and to redeem them, not based on our goodness for Him, but based on His covenant and loyal and steadfast love. And here's why that's good news. If, the, if his rescue plan was based on what we were doing for him, if he saved us because of what we had done, then we can lose that salvation based on what we had done. Oh, my friends, because we did not earn it, we cannot lose it. But his decisive will then stepped in and said, No, I love these people. Why? Deuteronomy chapter 7 says he loves us because he loves us. That's the best answer we've got. One person said, if you find the reason for God's love, you have found the wrong reason. What we are able to stand in is that his love, and do you know how his love is described throughout the Bible? The most important Hebrew, One of the most important words in the Hebrew Bible, we talked about it in Lamentations, that word hesed. It is his steadfast love, his loyal love, his faithful love. We don't have en- enough English words to describe it, but that's what us trying to get to it. It is his loyal love that's never leaving, his decisive love according to his will, and we can rest in that. That's why we, uh, I was officiating a wedding last week, a couple people in our church, Ryan and Madison, uh, Madison used to be West, now Ramsey, um, and I was officiating the wedding, and it's always important to me to highlight the moment whenever vows are exchanged, Those vows, those promises are the foundation of a marriage relationship. It is not feeling. It is not affection. Because listen, feelings are going to come and go. And if our commitment is based on our feelings, then we're going to fall in and out of that love. But if our love is based on our commitment, yes, then that's the soil in which affection, real affection can grow. Where there's that kind of safety. Where there's that kind of confidence. Well, there's that kind of acceptance. And friends, that love isn't human-originated. It is based on God's love for his people. His love for us was not like, man, they're doing great. I really am in love with them today. And then the next day, man, they are just terrible. I have fallen out of love with them. No, he remains faithful even when we are faithless because he cannot deny himself. And his love is based on that commitment, that promise, his will and his plan. What wonderful news. And maybe a better analogy in understanding this than marriage is to think about adoption. I think adoption is a good picture to us to help us get our minds around this. We have a few families here that have adopted, one most recently in December as we celebrated a new uh, baby uh, in this congregation, young Piper. I think adoption gets at the heart of this because what do those children who adopted at birth, what have they done to earn the love of those parents? Nothing. They hadn't done a thing. If anything, when they come into the family, they make life worse. There's a lot more poop in the household after this child comes, (laughs) a lot less sleep. Things are actually harder. So, where does this love come from? It comes from this commitment to set their love on this child before they've done anything to earn it. And so, there's nothing that they can do to lose it. It's a committed love, a steadfast love. I had the chance to stand with some friends in a courtroom as their adoption papers were finalized. And hearing the judge describe what was happening legally was just outstanding to me. Here's what the judge said I had to write it down because I couldn't believe what he was saying. Here's what the judge said to the family He said, Today, you're asking the court to add the final order for adoption. If the court enters that order, in the eyes of the law, this boy will have all the same rights, claims, and benefits as if he were naturally born. Do you understand? And among those rights and benefits include being a full heir to you. Oh, friends, that judge said it, but man, he could have been right up here preaching right now. Because that's the story of the gospel. Not only has God saved us from our sin and delivered us from this evil age, but he has also adopted us into his family, made us a child, made us a son. We come to him now not as a judge afraid, but we come to him as a father J.I. Packer wrote, Father is the Christian name for God. That's what we get to call him. We come as a father. And you'll see adoptions all through Galatians. I don't think that's by coincidence. We're going to get into more of that later on. But this is the kind of love that God has for his people. It's according to his will. And it is committed and it is not going anywhere. It is a love that will not let us go. He will hold us fast. Even when our faith may fail, Christ will hold us fast because his love is based on his will and commitment and his plans before the foundations of the earth. Oh, friends, what great news. And do you know what that leads to? I heard it right then. It leads to praise. Paul can't help himself here in verse 5. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is his praise now here in verse 5. This gospel, I've heard Garrett say before, this gospel has to be sung. We, count, we don't have the words to describe it all. We need music to help us understand what this message is. And you've got to think about it. God made music. It was his idea. It's powerful. It helps communicate things that words fall short of. I can't help but think that part of the reason why is to help give us as his people ways to thank him for what he's done for us when our words fail. This music begins to rise up and we see his praise. First, we see the recipient of his praise in verse 5. Who's getting the praise? To him. To him. To him. He gets the praise. And him alone. Uh, He is the one who gets the glory because it's His rescue plan. He is the rescuer. It's Him who gets the glory. He's the recipient of praise. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, Paul writes this, that God um, had uh, saved us and said that those He foreknew, He also predestined. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Where is I, me, or my anywhere in those verses? There's nowhere. You know what's there? He, 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 he. And so who gets the glory for the work? He does. Oh, to him be the glory. He alone, he is the one who is rescued. I didn't add or contribute anything to it except the sin that made it necessary, Jonathan Edwards said. He gets the work. The one who does the work gets the glory, and He's the one that's done the work. He's the recipient of our praise. What's the substance of our praise then? Well, it's glory. To Him be the glory. He is glorified. He is lifted up. He is magnified. God, You are worthy. You are worthy of honor and blessing and glory. Those are the words you see in Revelation around the throne. Bringing glory to His name. Talking about how amazing He is. All that He has done. Who He is. His work. His plan. His redemption his throne his lamb his lion he's the one that's getting all the glory and not us and what's the duration of our praise it's never ending it is forever and ever amen oh friends we will we won't be able to find the words but we'll have eternity to try To be able to praise him forever and ever as we stand around the throne glorifying him, this great rescuer who has now saved us and transferred us into his family and into his kingdom. He gets the glory. We didn't add anything to it. So you hear again Paul setting the dynamite in place here in the Judaizers' argument. Oh no, you didn't add anything to this gospel. It's all grace, and he gets the glory. Uh, with this uh, past week, we've been doing a lot of renovations in our home. And I have been breaking things. My father-in-law has been fixing them. <laughs> and we laid new floor, new tile, a couple other things. And in uh, some of the projects, uh, one of my kids wanted to come and help. And so it was me and my father-in-law and one of my kids. And so we're helping. We're doing, we're laying uh, new vinyl flooring in one of our rooms. And we finished and got done with the day. And I just was honestly surprised. I was like, that went faster than I thought it would. And we're sitting there with our family, kind of talking about it. And I'm going, I I didn't expect at the end of this day, we'd be able to do a whole room with just the two of us. And my child said, um, the three of us. (laughs) You know what I did? I bent down, I said, you didn't do anything. (laughs) Let me teach you about the gospel. (laughs) No, no, I did not do that. I said, You're absolutely right, the three of us. But you know why she was absolutely right? Because there were some things that she did. She wasn't as helpful as my father in law. She wasn't as helpful as me, but she was helpful. She actually did. She was running to go get boards. Like she, I was, the whole day, I was like, well, You're like actually helping us. Thank you. You're helping this go quicker. And by the end, her claim was actually justified because she did do some of the work. It may not have been as much, but she did do some of the work and she deserves some of that glory. Those are the three of us. Oh, friends, our boasting. Our bragging is in nothing that we bring to the table. We don't look and go, yeah, Jesus did most of the work, but I did a little bit of it. It was the two of us. We did a really good job. No, it's him alone. We add Nothing. We contribute nothing. We needed the rescue. We cannot stand around his throne and go, you did 99% of it. This 1% that I did, I believed hard enough. I trusted deep enough. I worked long enough. I was good enough. None of that that we contribute. We will stand before the throne and go, oh, your amazing grace. There's nothing that I stand on apart from your unmerited favor. It is a gospel of grace, a gift that I can never repay and that you've never asked me to. And so our song is that we will step back and we can sing now and throughout eternity that I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, that his wounds have paid my ransom. Friends, let's pray.